Are listening to Radio Silence here on Radio Fodder. We are going to be bringing science into focus for the next hour. I'm Kate. I am a neuroscience student at the University of Melbourne, and I am joined by our our co-host, my co-host, uh, <laughs> Kai. Hi, how you going? Pretty good. Uh, I'm Kai. I'm studying physics, and and yeah, good to be here. Yeah. So today we are going to be, our theme for the show is sensing. We're going to be talking about lots of different types of sensing. It's going to be a fun one. Kai, what's your favorite sense, human sense? Surely have to be hearing because without it, I couldn't listen to radio silence. You would. You would (laughs) say that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good one. Love, love the what's, cheeky. What's your favorite sense then? Um, look, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be extra, a little bit special, and say not one of the the basic five senses, okay. but the sense of proprioception, which is where your body yeah, is, is in space. So it's like when you shut your eyes, you can still touch your nose, like you know where your nose is, oh, you know where your hands are. It's proprioception, yep. so you can you can still tell where you are and what you're doing without being able to see. And I think that it is incredibly cool that we're able to do that. So. I'm going to be that person. Yeah, um, fair enough. No, that is definitely a cool sense. It is. It is. Um, but before we get into some more stuff about sensing, we should start with some news. Kai, what news have you got for us this week? All right. Well, there is a group of scientists who are simulating ecology or ecological systems using swarms of robots. What? Yeah, so what they've done is they've made like dozens of sort of hockey puck sized robots and that the all these robots have light sensors underneath them. Uh, and yes. and what they've done is they've made this big LED light up floor. Oh. And the robots are programmed to like move towards the areas that are brighter on the floor. They're like seeking out the brightest parts of the floor. Oh my gosh, that's really cool. Yeah, and I mean then, that's cool just from like a nifty that we can a do nifty this little thing. Yeah, like ecological side, you know. But then, the, then the floor senses when there's a robot on top of it and gets dimmer over time. So what this is simulating is that the robots are like consuming whatever resource the light is representing, and then they consume it in one area and they go, "Oh, this is a dim area. Like, let's go move somewhere else." And then they go seek out more resources. No. Yeah, and then when you have a whole bunch of different robots moving around doing this it's you're able to simulate a biological system like animals grazing or like bacteria growing in a in a culture where there's there's different amounts of food in different areas and yeah. it's it's really cool just to watch videos of these little robots moving around and like bumping into each other and, and going to the areas with more food and it's really cool but something yeah. else that they they discovered while doing this that was a bit of a surprise but there's these systems behaved like matter so, like, atoms moving around in space. No, that's cool. Yeah, and, and it's like when the the robots have lots of space to move around and lots of resources, they can sort of just do their own thing. It's mm. like a gas, or the, the gas particles, like, flying around like crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then as the researchers reduced the available space and the resources started running out, the, the robots got, you know, moved around less and it was more mm-hmm. like a liquid, and eventually when all of the resources ran out, they just stopped still, and it was like it would become a solid. And they oh. actually, like, arranged into sort of like a structure 
that was yeah, yeah like a solid. Interesting. So very cool. And there's plans for them to build more sophisticated robots that have like different sensors on them, so they could detect two different coloured lights. Say there was like two different types of resources, mm-hmm. and yeah, they could use this to simulate a whole bunch of different scenarios that. You know, who knows what they're going to find out. They were surprised with this one. So, I think... Yeah. Oh, that's very, so fun. Very, cool. I love that. Yeah. What news have you got, Kate? Well, my news isn't quite as fun, <laughs> um, but I think it's it's very important and very cool okay. in its own way. So, if you weren't aware, yesterday, um, the 18th of March, was Global Recycling Day. <laughs> and this is kind of important because I don't know if you guys are aware, but... Uh, Climate change is a thing yeah, and, you know, natural resources, energy use, all of these things. We want to protect our natural resources. We want to minimize our energy use. We want to minimize our CO2 emissions. Um, and recyclables each year. So recyclables are considered the seventh resource. I'm not actually entirely sure what the other six ones are. (laughs) I'll be completely honest, but recyclables are considered an important resource, which currently save over 700 million tons in CO2 emissions. And this is projected to increase to 1 billion tons by 2030. So investing in recyclables and, and, you know, recycling our waste products Mm. is, is massive in the fight against climate change. And the reason this is really cool and really important is because this paper has just come out in response to, you know, in in time for Global Recycling Day, where these scientists from Flinders University, Deakin University and Liverpool University have essentially invented a new insulation material where they've taken waste cooking oil, so canola oil, Mm -hmm. um, sulfur and wool offcuts, and they've put them together to create this new building insulation that works for, like, thermal insulation for buildings. Oh, cool. Yeah. And this is really exciting because, obviously, you know, we want good insulation in our buildings because this is going to save on heating, you know, which is also massive CO2 emissions. And don't, you know, we don't love that. And also, very this is a very cost-effective resource because we're using, we're just using waste products. So not only are we saving money... Uh, sorry, not only are we saving the environment, we're saving money. Mm. So this is really cool. So this particular study, um, they they did this really cool stuff. So they got, essentially, in the first step, what they did is they created a polymer using canola oil and sulfur. And they yep. used something called inverse vulcanization to make this polymer and combine these things. And it was a powdered polymer. Now, this on its own has been, you know, there's been some research into using this to potentially clean up oil spills. Um, It has lots of other potential really important and really exciting uses. But what they did is then they then took it a second step and they took wool fibers, like fibers of wool, and they used electrostatic attraction to combine this and and they heated it Mm. to lock the polymer in with the wool fibers and they found that this thing that they, you know, this new material that they'd created had really, really good tensile strength, had really, really effective insulating properties. And because wool wool is not very flammable and that's ideally yeah. what you want in a good insulation material. True. You don't want it to be flammable. And so <laughs> essentially they found 
what is a really, really good promising lead for like next generation insulation for conserving energy as well as using recyclables and minimizing our environmental footprint, which is maybe not as fun as glowing floors and robots, but I but think it's is a lot more important. <laughs> very, very important. Yeah. Yeah. So that's yeah, that's the news that I've got. Um very today. Cool. Yeah. So, before we shuffle on to our episode all on sensing, we have our first song, which is Sense by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. You are listening to Radio Silence here on Radio Fodder, and that was Sense by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, because today we are talking all about sensing. Kai, do you want to start us off? Yeah, so, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we could see things that were invisible? That would be nifty. I wouldn't mind that. And, like, we, we kind of already can to some extent, and, like, and we do, but some of the things that come to mind is, like, there is light that's outside of human vision that we can detect, uh, like, infrared or ultraviolet light. You know, you can make an infrared camera that, that can see, like, thermal images and, mm, and gives us true. information that you might not be able to, you know, you can't detect with your eyes. Mm. And, like, ultraviolet, uh, you've probably seen, like, sunscreen ads where people rub sunscreen on their face and then the uv camera shows their face is like fully black because it absorbs Mm. all the uv yeah um so yeah there's some there's some cool things that we can already detect that aren't visible to the human eye but Mm -hmm. like then there are some things that are invisible just because they're see-through and and let's let's think about that for a second so you can't really directly look at a transparent object you know the only way you know it's there is the way it affects the light traveling through it it's not like you're actually seeing it so Mm. you know glass is transparent and we we kind of can see glass because it kind of bends the light it acts like a lens like if you put a glass on a table and look through it the light gets Mm. bent around um or maybe it's got dust on the surface or something and you're seeing Mm. the scattered dust or it's got a bit of glare reflecting yeah 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 so so we kind of know that you can see transparent things depending on you know the way that the light interacts with them Mm, but I guess, yeah, you're not actually seeing the Yeah, thing. so now the, the reason that we actually get a lens-like effect when light shines through glass is because of differences in what's called the refractive index. Mm-hmm. Now, what this actually means is the, the refractive index is actually basically just measuring the speed of light in that material. Now, it's, it's kind of something that people don't really expect to hear because everyone's like oh the speed of light is like a constant but that's not true yeah no you're right light actually slows down when it travels through a material Mm. and when you have the light slowing down as it enters a different material it bends a little bit and Mm -hmm. that's the refraction effect or what causes you know what makes lenses work what makes light bend when it goes in and out of water or or something like that Mm -hmm. so you know, this is this is sort of what we're seeing is this bending effect is because of changes in refractive index. Now, have you ever seen one of those videos where people put like something in, like they get like a glass and then they put something else glass inside it and then pour like liquid in and then the inside object just vanishes? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. So those those videos are 
what they're doing is exploiting the fact that the liquid they're pouring in, which is normally like an oil or something, has very, very similar refractive index to glass. So when you pour the oil in around the inside glass, uh-huh. there's no longer a change in the speed of light. So the light doesn't bend when it goes from oil into the glass. Uh, yeah. So you can't, you can't see it because there's nothing there to see. Yeah, because there's no comparison where it's different to its surrounding. Yeah, so there's, there's no change in huh. the, the direction that the light is traveling. So you can't actually see the glass on the inside because it's transparent. That makes sense. Um, but we can actually use these small differences in refractive index to image objects that are otherwise pretty much transparent or like basically invisible. Mm-hmm. And this is pretty important in like when you're trying to image biological cells because I'm probably going to offend you, Kate, but basically <laughs> a cell is like a sack of water floating in water. Well, you know, that's that's probably fair. I'm not going to fight you on that. <laughs> it's, it, it's a salty sack it's a, of water floating in other salty water. Yeah, and, and salty yeah. water and like maybe slightly more salty water have very small differences in refractive index. Yeah. And we can use this small difference, even though you might look at it and you basically can't tell the difference because the light travels pretty much straight through and makes it really hard to image some cells. That's why, you know, people might use stains or something yeah. to, to make it easier to see the cell. They put in a stain that, that changes the way that it absorbs light, which makes it easier to see. But sometimes yeah. you don't want to do that because maybe the stain will affect what you're looking at and that could be bad. Yes. So, there's a technique called phase contrast imaging, which is used to overcome this. And we know that light behaves like a wave. It has an amplitude, so like how big the wave is, and a phase. Mm -hmm. And and the phase is like whether the wave is at a peak or a trough at any given time. Yeah. Now, because when light travels through an object, it slows down depending on the refractive index, if you have two beams of light that are coming in with their phase, like in phase, so their peaks and troughs are matching up. Mm-hmm. And one of them goes through a bit that makes, you know, makes it slow down more, makes the light travel a little bit slower. When it comes out the other side, its peaks and troughs will have shifted yeah, compared right. to the other beam. So, so what this means is that then the, the light's going to interfere with itself and depending on what the phase shift is, depending on whether mm. on the other side the peaks line up with the peaks and the troughs line up with the troughs, will, if, that, if that's the case, it will actually constructively interfere. You'll get more light because they, they, yeah, they, they add, add up. Together. But if it's the other way around and the peaks cancel out with the troughs, then you get less light. Mm-hmm. And, and what this technique actually does is make, it gives you more contrast in the image that you're, that you're looking at because if you are getting interference that means you can actually detect very small differences in refractive index. So let's say you, the cell that you're trying to look at has little bits that are maybe slightly saltier than other bits and the light will travel more slowly through those sections, mm. which, which is just enough, even though it's like imperceptible, if you were just looking at it, you wouldn't know. Because mm. you can use this interference effect, you can then determine how like the internal structure of the cell because of of this sort of detection and that's really clever yeah it's it's really cool and there's there's other more advanced ways of doing it you could use things like polarization as well so light mm-hmm. has a polarization whether the waves are going up and down or left and side right side 
Yeah, and and you can use you know clever techniques like that to to also get information about things that are otherwise invisible. Mm-hmm. But this doesn't only work with visible light; it also works with X-rays. And oh, no way. we think about this like when you go to get an X-ray normally, you know we're basically relying on the fact that flesh is basically transparent to X-rays. They go straight through yeah. your, your you know skin and muscle, but they they get absorbed by bone and that's how you get a normal like standard Mm. x-ray but with phase contrast imaging techniques you can use x-rays to actually take images of soft tissue no yeah soft tissue x-rays so it's it's really cool that you can you can do something that you'd normally like oh yeah x-rays go straight through yeah and some of the the like they stuff they do with this is well this is something that they do with like the synchrotron you know, it's out the big building out in Clayton where like it's like basically a particle accelerator that accelerates electrons to really close to the speed of light. And when they do that, it gives off a whole heap of X-rays. Oh. And these are really cool X-ray. Like the X-rays are really good quality and they can do mm-hmm. these sorts of phase contrast imaging techniques. And yeah, some of the the images that they they create are really cool because, you know, they can do things like take lots of rapid-fire x-rays and make x-ray movies. Mm. And what? Yeah. Um, I think one experiment... Like a stop-motion of x-ray. Exactly. And oh, and I think sick. they did one where... Um, I think it was a rabbit. When the rabbit was born, they were able to x-ray like the, its lungs in the moment that it took its first breath. <gasps> what? And they were able to get like an idea of what like what happened in that moment where the mammal lungs like first took a breath and was like going from you know not breathing air to breathing air and capture that on film is yeah it's pretty cool that is wild yes. wild <laughs> that is so, some clever sensing not there is lie. some clever ways to detect light that are or even x-rays which is basically light but at a, at a higher energy invisible light invisible light yeah able to see things that are otherwise invisible using clever sensing oh wow i scientists are so clever man <laughs> i just truly you know i feel like my brain's gonna be blown several times throughout today's episode and this is just you know the first but i love it amazing Well, I'm going to take us on to our next song, which is Tangerine by Glass Animals. Welcome back to Radio Silence here on Radio Fodder. That was Tangerine by Glass Animals. And today we have a special guest, Erin. Erin, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well, thanks. It's good to hear. So, would you like to introduce yourself? Like, what do you do? Uh, so, I'm currently just transitioned from being a second to third year PhD student uh, in the new uh, physical biosciences group, uh, sort of more broadly within the um, condensed matter group uh, at the uh, in the physics department at the university. Cool. So... Physical biosciences, what, what are we talking about here? Well, kind of the overarching group is just, you know, sort of physics applications to questions about biology. Um, so there's sort of a few different groups under that umbrella. 
um, but our group specifically uses quantum sensing to sort of look at biological systems. Cool. I can see Kate's eyes are lighting up when she <laughs> hears the, the hears biology. <laughs> yeah. Physics, uh, but make it biology and I'm suddenly intrigued. <laughs> Not just a pure physics chat. <laughs> yeah, nice. So so what you said quantum sensing, what sort of things are we talking about with that? Yeah, what what is quantum sensing? That's this is my very dumb question coming in from the start. I have no idea what that means whatsoever. So you're gonna have to like Spell it out for me. Uh, so it's got that, that buzzword at the beginning of quantum. <laughs> quantum. Yeah, in the media at the moment, but you probably heard it in front of computing. So quantum computing. Uh, but yep. in this case, it's in front of the word sensing. So uh, you can probably guess that we're using it, uh, a quantum system to sort of learn about uh, properties of a particular sample that we're interested in. So... Um, you can kind of do quantum sensing in like two different modalities. So you can do it in optical um, sort of systems. So just using light, um, which is in some uh, specific quantum state. Um, but in our group, we used a condensed matter modality. So that just means a solid. Um, mm -hmm. So you can think of sort of semiconductors, but in our case, it's actually uh, a specific, specially uh, engineered diamond that we can use to do our sensing. That's cool. Yeah, it is pretty cool. Uh, so the reason that quantum sensing is kind of interesting and useful as a technique is that, um, so quantum systems or just the word quantum really applies to very small things. So you can think of like atoms, molecules, um, subatomic sub systems as well. Uh, so that means that you, when you're using quantum sensing, you're really interested in probing things at a very small scale. So that can be small um, physical scales or it could be really small energy scales. Um, so I think like a good example um, of kind of the underlying physical principles that you use in a lot of quantum sensing is actually the same thing that underlies um, like MRI technology. Um, okay. Yeah, so if you think about an MRI, uh, it can give you an image um, or a map of your body. So I know you can you do brain MRIs, but you can also do um, body MRIs. Uh, and so that's looking at sort of the chemical environment of hydrogen atoms uh, within your body. Um, so, yeah, the physical uh, principles which underlie MRI um, are quantum, and that's sort of similar to uh, the principles that we use in our quantum sensing system. So MRI is kind of like a an older example, um, but the quantum sensing that we're interested in is like quite you know new stuff, but similar in sort of the physics that underlies it. Um, so I said that our our group uses diamonds. So specifically, we're looking at this. Uh, defect or impurity which can naturally occur in diamonds in nature so if you have heard of a pink diamond um, they're mm. kind of the really rare diamonds um, mm. and they're pink because within the sort of pure crystal lattice that makes up a diamond so that's just carbon atoms that are all arranged really um, periodically in space 
um, you can have a defect in there. So instead of a carbon, in, in the case of the defect we're interested in, instead of that carbon, you'll have a nitrogen uh, instead, and it will occur next to just a vacancy, so like nothing. Um, and together, that behaves sort of like an atom, um, has similar sort of um, quantum properties to an atom. Um, and what's really great about it is that it responds to um, magnetic fields, electric fields, uh, changes in temperature, and also if you have some like strain within the diamond. So you can actually use this system to look at any of those properties in a sample that you're interested in at really small scales. Um, so in our group, we're kind of interested more in um, looking at the magnetic field type stuff because that gives mm -hmm. you sort of the strongest signal. Um, and there are a lot of different applications of that. Yeah. So if I could give you like kind of an image of what an experiment looks like, because that sort of sounds mm. very like mm. um, conceptual, I guess. Theoretical. Yes. <laughs> um, so <laughs> an experiment sort of looks like you have a regular microscope that you'd find just in a biology lab. Um, mm -hmm. And then where the sample would usually go on that microscope, you have your little glass slide um, and you'd usually put your sample just on that glass slide and have a look at it. Mm -hmm. But in our case, we get uh, a tiny diamond. So it's only a few millimeters square and it's mm -hmm. flat. Uh, so when you say, oh, I work with diamonds, it sounds kind of glamorous, but actually it's slightly <laughs> <tiny>. underwhelming <laughs> when you show someone, they're like, oh, what? That doesn't look like anything. Because, um, yeah, it's quite small. Like it's a diamond, I swear. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's been specially grown so that, it, you know, it's really good. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, on the glass slide, we'll just put this um, diamond and then on top of that goes whatever we are interested in looking at. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, that's sort of the, the main setup, but then it's been modified a little bit more as well so that we can actually shine a green laser onto the diamond and then look at uh, red light that the diamond produces in response to the laser. Um, and so we can monitor how much of that red light um, comes off and then infer stuff about the sample. So whether that be magnetic fields or maybe electric fields or changes in temperature, that sort of thing. That's that's pretty cool. Um, that's so incredibly what sort of... cool. <laughs> <laughs> pretty cool. Pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. It's got lasers, so I'm Kai all for is it. Hard to impress, apparently. Like, <laughs> you had me at diamonds. Uh. Nice, but yeah, what sort of samples are we we putting on here? Biological ones, but like what? Yeah. So um, I said I'm part of physical biosciences, but um, sort of more broadly, this sensing technique can be used to look at just um, more sort of samples that are interesting from like a fundamental physics kind of perspective. So we have, kind of have two branches in our group. So there are people that look at um, materials, like new and interesting magnetic materials. Um, so okay. this is kind of like a really new field of work where uh, on quite really small scales, you see these really interesting magnetic properties to um, materials that are just kind of being discovered. Uh, and so that's interesting from just trying to understand where these magnetic properties come from. Um, but it could also, you know, in the future have applications to kind of maybe new computer hardware type 
storage devices. Cool. Yeah. And so, uh, so I was talking about how it actually looks, like how an experiment looks. Uh, and if you think about an optical microscope, you use it to make images, right? So mm-hmm. um, the way that our sensing works is that you can actually create an image of the magnetic field and how it changes across whatever the sample is. Uh, and you can then take an optical image, so just like a regular photo of that sample, and sort of correlate the two to try and oh. see maybe where the magnetic properties come from. Yeah. Um, That's cool. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. And another really amazing aspect of this technique is that I guess you'd have to be kind of familiar with magnets. So this might be a little bit too technical, but um, the magnetic field has a direction. So Mm -hmm. uh, it's a vector property. Um, And you cannot just see like, so the strength of the magnetic field, but you can actually see the direction of it using this technique. So you can actually make a a vector map of sort of how the direction of the magnetic field changes across whatever the sample is. Um, So there's been some really cool work in the group, like using that aspect of the technique. Yeah, wow. And that was actually one of the, like my favorite kind of application has been a biological application. Um, So, one of the uh, kind of previous PhD students in our group was looking at this little creature that lives um, in rock pools. It's called chitin. Um, there's lots mm-hmm. of different species of them. Um, you can find them kind of all around the world, I believe. Um, even in rock pools, like sort of around Australia. And it's really interesting because it eats algae that live on the rock. But to do that, it kind of has to eat the rock as well. Um, yeah, right. So what it looks like is kind of, I don't know how you describe it, like a, like a little millipede type thing um, mm-hmm. with segments and like a shell. Um, and it has a radula to eat the rock. So um, like a series of teeth that are... Uh, kind of grow and then become really, really hard to be able to scrape that rock um, and then get worn away and fall off. So if you take out the the radula, you can see kind of the full development of each of the teeth. Mm -hmm. Um, And in order to be able to eat the rock, the teeth have to be obviously very, very hard. And to get that hard, it's actually the hardest biomineral that's ever been identified. Um, They're made out of iron but iron is in this form <laughs> magnetic. Um, yeah. And so that, it's, it's got iron teeth. Yes, it's got iron teeth. It's so cool. <laughs> yes. And it's just like this really kind of this little creature that you probably like never look at and be like, oh, that's got. Yeah, very unsuspecting. And really, it's like, nah, really it's got interesting. badass hard iron teeth. Yeah. Um, so she spent a while looking at sort of the stages of development. So it goes from being not magnetic and not very hard to being, you know, fully developed. Um, and so the people that study these chitin are really interested in like how that process happens. Um, so she was able to create a, a map across the stages of development, but then also a really detailed map of um, the fully developed tooth and how the magnetic field kind of 
changed over the yeah how it how it changed and then how it looks when it's fully developed and you can correlate that with sort of like the actual structure of the material as well yeah it's very well cool. my mind is blown <laughs> her name was julia That's... by the way so shout out to julia <laughs> very nice wow this quantum sensing stuff is very very cool um well, look, as much as I'd love to keep talking about this for another like three hours, <laughs> we should probably shuffle on to our next song. We hey. should probably wrap it up. But before we go, Erin, you do a bit of other psychom. Do you want to tell people quickly about that and where they can find you? Yeah, sure. Um, I have a blog. It's at theartinscience.com. Uh, and I also, so that blog is sort of combining. Um, writing about science topics with um, art, which is sort of my other passion. Um, and I also have an Instagram dedicated just to art, which is um, at Erin Grant Art. Cool. Well, check that out because Erin's artwork is pretty good, if I do say so myself. Uh, Thank you. Thanks again for coming in. Thanks we for having now me. Oh, no worries. We're now going our next song, which is When I Dream by San Cisco. That was When I Dream by San Cisco. You're listening to Radio Silence here on Radio Fodder. Today we're talking all about sensing. Kate, tell us some more. Well, look, would I be me if I didn't pick neuroscience as uh, (laughs) the area I wanted to talk about? And a particularly cool thing that we're able to sense or a particularly cool technology I want to talk about that's relatively new in terms of you know, the scheme of the history of how we have sensed brain activity mm-hmm. and measured brain activity and neural activity. And so fiber photometry is what I want to talk about. And this is okay. this is a technique that's used for sensing and also measuring, like I said, neural activity. So the activity of neurons. And mm. it's kind of like, you know, electrophysiology, which is where you would stick little electrodes into a rodent brain, for example, and that allows you to record electrical activity. Because we all know, or we should all know, because neuroscience is amazing, and if you didn't know, the way our neurons work is, it's electricity, essentially. They shoot electricity. And so you'd, you'd think that a very easy way to measure neural activity is to put electrodes in there and measure that. But the problem with electrophysiology is that you shove an electrode into a brain area and that's just going to give you a very broad idea of the general electrical activity that's happening within that brain region right okay. so we're I talking about in like, live animals i should say we're here. shoving we have, an electrode in its brain was we, the are, problem, we are we are no, we have like live animals <laughs> they don't die in um because you can implant you do a surgery they're asleep for the surgery don't worry and then we wake them up we're very kind to them um and you can put an electrode into a certain brain region and you can get that animal to do a behavior and you can measure the amount of electrical activity in that brain region which like that's, that's pretty, pretty cool, cool right i'm not i'm not gonna dump on that too much but the problem with that is that our brains are super complicated and measuring just general electrical activity within a brain region sometimes doesn't tell us all we need to know. So Mm. hypothetical scenario, right? You've got cell A and cell B within a brain region. And the activation of cell A, 
is going to lead to behavior A and the activation of cell B is going to lead to behavior B. But both of these cells are in such close proximity to each other that essentially the electrode can't distinguish between whether A is firing or B is firing or both are firing, right? Essentially, Mm. you're not going to be able to tell. So we need a way to record activity from individual cell populations during a behavior. And we've done it. We've got it. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, fiber photometry is here to save the day. And it's cool. so cool. Wait for your... It's my turn to blow people's blow minds now. Minds. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we can do this to work out what specific cells in specific circuits are doing. So before I kind of explain how, I need to give you some important sort of background information on the way neurons work beyond just saying electricity. Electricity, okay. Yeah. So, you know, like like we said before, Kai, cells are just salty sacks, sacks of water. Of water. <laughs> um, and the reason we say salty is because they have ions in them, right? And so essentially neurons are negatively charged on the inside when they're just kind of chilling, right? Okay. And what happens is when a neuron is hit with like an excitatory signal from the neuron before it in the mm-hmm. chain... It's going to open a bunch of gates within its membrane and a whole lot of positive ions are going to flow into the neuron, which is going to depolarize the neuron, lead to an action potential, which is just the positive charge that moves across the membrane. And it moves, it starts at the cell body, it moves towards the terminal. And this is the charge that electrophysiology is going to measure. But inside the terminal, you've got all your neurotransmitters that are just chilling in little bubbles called vesicles. And for these vesicles to fuse and release the neurotransmitters, you actually need calcium. So when the action potential hits the terminal, it hits a bunch of voltage-gated ion channels, which open up and let calcium into the cell. This is important. Calcium is important. Remember calcium. Yep. So given this calcium influx, what fiber photometry does is it measures calcium influx as a proxy for neuronal for neuronal activity essentially okay. so some really clever people have actually engineered proteins that fluoresce in the presence of calcium okay. so the most common one of these is called gcamp which essentially it combines gfp which is green fluorescent protein something <laughs> we originally found in jellyfish and it it has a fluorophore in the middle and it absorbs blue light and emits green light that's what gfp does yep. and then you've got calmodulin which is a thing that detects calcium essentially when it bind, it binds calcium and can detect calcium so we've fused these gfp and calmodulin to create gcamp so now what we have is we have a tool that when it binds to calcium will emit green light in the presence of blue light, right? Right. So far, so cool, right? So yeah. the gene that encodes these two proteins, that encodes um, GCAMP, can then be expressed in whichever cell population you're interested in. So how do we do that? Well, I'm glad you asked. You didn't ask, <laughs> but I'm going to tell you anyway. So the way our cells work, different cells within the brain or within the body in general express different genes because they contain different proteins, right? And it, it cells kind of determine which genes to express based on their genetic code. So what we can actually do is we can genetically modify mice so that they express a particular protein called Cree in a cell-specific way. So all cells are going to encode for this Cree, but only the ones you want are going to express it. So, for example, you've got brain region A. 
Um, and it has acetylcholine neurons and it's got dopamine neurons. So it's got ones that have the receptors for acetylcholine and it's got, you've got a different cell population that has the receptors for dopamine. So your dopamine neurons, acetylcholine neurons. But let's say you only care about the dopamine neurons. We want to know what yeah. happens when the dopamine neurons are activating. We don't want to know about the acetylcholine neurons. So what we can do is we can genetically modify mice so that only our dopamine neurons express the Cree and the acetylcholine mm. ones don't. And so then what we can do is experiment day rolls around. We can use a virus to insert the sequence for GCAMP, the GCAMP gene, which is inside this virus that we've, you know, engineered because people are so smart. <laughs> And so you've got this virus that has got the G-Camp gene. You inject it into this brain region A that you care about. And then what's going to happen is that G-Camp's going to go into all of the neurons, the dopamine ones and the acetylcholine ones. But since the dopamine ones are the ones that have Cree, they're going to express the G-Camp. Okay. Because you kind of you need the Cree to express the G-Camp. So you're going to get the, the G-Camp is going to, that gene is going to go into the genome of the acetylcholine neurons as well, but mm. it's not going to express it because it doesn't have the Cree expressed. These are kind of like a lock and key. They, they work together. Okay, they they work together. interact. You need one to do the other. And yep. so here you've got a population within, your, within a brain region that is expressing G-Camp and not the other ones. So then... Then, once you've got that, because you, you do it on experiment day, because I think the G-Camp, the virus, uh, I think it's about 24 hours, within 24 hours that it lasts yep. within, the, within the brain before that virus breaks down and it stops doing the thing that you want it to do. So then what you can do is to record the activity, you can use fiber optics to transmit and receive light signals. So you do, you, you insert these cannulas into the brain region of interest and you put these little like fiber optic cable, ca cables? What is a cable? Cable. It's a very, very thin fiber optic cable into the brain region. And it, this is then during the experiment connected to both a laser and a detector or a sensor, I should say, <laughs> because sensing. Yeah. So You've got this setup, you've got your mice set up, you've got your cells expressing what you want to express. You then are getting your mice to do whatever behavior it is that you wanted to see. Like, for example, I don't know, maybe pressing a lever for alcohol. That'd be a fun one. <laughs> don't know who would be interested in that. For those of you who haven't listened to the show before, this is what I do in my research. Um, so, so, and this is a thing that, that rodents can do. You can train them to press a lever for alcohol and you can be like, right, I want to see what happens in these dopamine neurons. Don't care about yeah. these acetylcholine ones. I want to see what happens in these dopamine neurons when they are performing this behavior, when they're pressing the lever. Mm or when they're taking a drink, for example. So you can use this laser to shoot a blue light, or so like blue photons get mm. sent down the fiber to the brain. These blue photons hit these neurons. So if the cell is inactive, so not doing anything, this dopamine neuron, for example, it's just chilling, yep. then there's no calcium coming in. Because remember I said right, when yeah. a cell is doing its thing, you need... like calcium comes in to release the neurotransmitters. Yes. But if the cell's not doing anything, there's going to be no calcium. So the G-camp mm -hmm. is there, but it's it's not... It's not detecting calcium. It's not binding to calcium, so it's not doing the, the green the light glowy thing. thing. But the glowy thing, exactly. But if the cell is active, so if these dopamine neurons are firing, then calcium is going to be flowing in. The calcium binds to the G-camp, the blue photons hit it, 
bind it, the blue light is absorbed by the fluorophore and yep. green light is emitted. And yep. then up those same cables, those same fiber optic cables. So they actually have a, what is it? A di- dichro- dichromatic, I can't. Oh. Dichromatic? No, di- the, the mirror that's in. Um, dichroic. Dichroic, that's the word I was looking for. This is what happens when I try to do it without the notes in front of me. Uh, you have a microscope that has these things. So essentially only certain wavelengths of light can pass through it in certain directions. Yep. And so you can use the same cables that send the blue mm. light down. The green light's going to come up and instead of going back into the laser, it's going to go instead, it's going to get redirected into the detector. Yep. And so you can pick up the green light that's emitted and you can essentially detect and record what is happening when, like, whether or not or how much mm. that cell is active versus not active. And so then what you end up with is this, like, trace over time as, and you can line that up with, say, you can, you can video the animal, right? Yeah, yeah. Running around the cage, pressing the lever, and you can line it up over time and see when the lever is pressed versus when the cells are active versus not mm. active based on this light coming in and down. And this is, we're shooting light into brains and we're getting glow, glowy light shot back out and we can yeah. tell whether a cell is firing, like an individual neuron. That's so cool. What um, it's doing, you had when me. it's doing it, how much it's doing it. <laughs> uh, and truly, truly it blows my mind. And so I, the example I said was G-Camp with calcium and stuff, but there are, they've actually developed sensors for different neurotransmitters, like acetylcholine, for example, which I interesting example, as I said, acetylcholine neurons. But, you know, say you wanted to pick a different neurotransmitter. Let's pick serotonin to not be confusing. Mm. So some cells, when, you know, the vesicles are going to be full of the serotonin and when they spew it out into the um, gap between the neurons, if you've got a particular sensor in there that's looking for that instead, you can actually measure using this same fiber photometry how much of that neurotransmitter is being spewed out at any given time. You don't just measure activation. Calcium measures activation, but yep. they're, they're developing new sensors every day for new neurotransmitters and different things. So you can, yeah. That's so it's very just, cool. it's wild. I, I find it so clever, so inspiring. And so I get so cool. excited that I get to use it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very cool. Very cool to hear about the, the, the different things you can do with sensing. And mm. yeah, that's that's it for our episode today. Uh, remember, you can check it out, uh, all our episodes on SoundCloud and follow us on Twitter at Radio Silence. Yeah, thanks for listening. Up now is Every Day by Wise Blood.